People of God, the devil is in the details. That's an expression that means that uh, while things may look good from the outside, yet the details of the situation reveal that things are not good. Things are not good in the life of Jacob. Things are not good, not only within his past, but now in the present of the current story. Here is yet another passage to bring us to see more of a negative example rather than a positive one. And the best support for this reading and understanding of Genesis 35, 1-15, is that the passage majors in revealing, or reviewing, I should say, reviewing the past. In this passage, God commands Jacob to return to Bethel. Go back to Bethel, says God. In one sense, we might see it as a matter of starting over. Uh, Things haven't gone well since Jacob's return to the promised land. His daughter has been violated by a man of the land, Shechem. His sons have abused a holy sacrament in order to gain advantage over the people of Shechem. And they have slaughtered an entire household, an entire city of people, because of what the prince of the city did to Dinah, their sister. So on one hand, we might understand that God was saying, let's start over at Bethel with hope that this time things will go better. When a a sports team has had a really bad game, uh, the coach might say, It's time to go back to the basics. Uh, It's time to set up the chairs uh, or or the cones and and to do the dribbling drills. It's time to work on the basic fundamentals of the game. It's time to go back to getting the team in shape, increasing their, uh, their stamina. So is that what is happening in Genesis 35? As God commands Jacob, arise and go up. To Bethel, I would argue no. God, God is not simply hitting the refresh button and returning to default settings. Instead, God is saying to Jacob, "You need to see that where you went wrong was even at Bethel, and even in the events that led you to Bethel." So it's not the matter of God saying, "Let's go back to basics." God is really saying. Let's watch the replay. Let's see the mistakes as they occurred and how they have contributed now to the massive defeat that you have experienced. So the first of five points this morning is this, back to Bethel. As we've heard read and as we've already noted, God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. And here's a point where we need to see that uh, our chapter divisions uh, within our Bibles are not always helpful uh, because we may tend to read and and hear Genesis 35 as something new and, and different from what comes before it. But the flow of the text, we might call it, is, is really this, that, that when at the end of uh of chapter 34, Jacob complained to his sons that they had made him a stench to the people of the land. And when his sons had responded, well, should he treat 
our sister like a prostitute? The very next words are God's words, His command, Arise, go up to Bethel, and dwell there. And can we hear the connection? You have made me stink to the inhabitants of the land, said Jacob. Yeah, but should he treat our sister like a prostitute, said Jacob's sons, Arise, go up to Bethel, and dwell there, said God. And what is the significance of Bethel? Bethel was the place, if you remember, not even a city at this point in history, as far as we can tell, a, a, a place where Jacob was given that vision of the ladder. It, it, it was a ladder from heaven to earth upon which angels were ascending and, and descending with the significance that here was the very presence of God. Jacob didn't say, oh, cool, angels. And despite the old Sunday school song, Jacob didn't even say, here's a ladder for me to climb. He, in, he instead said, recorded in Genesis 28, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And being afraid, as well he should, he said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. That's what Bethel means, house of God. Beth means house, and El means God. So that Bethel means house of God. It was the name that Jacob gave to that place because of his vision there of the latter. The problem is that Bethel wasn't the house of God, at least not by way of God's own design, It wasn't any kind of permanent dwelling place of God on earth, so it was rather impudent, uh, quite a bit nervy, as we say, for Jacob to take it upon himself to designate that particular location as Bethel, the house of God. Even the great King David was deterred by God from building him a house so that it was his son Solomon who built the actual Bethel, the actual house of God in Jerusalem. And Jacob combines his quite nervy naming of the place Bethel with his ceremonies. He, he set up the stone that he had used uh, that night as a pillow. As a pillow. Um, he set it up as a kind of monument. He poured oil on it, none of which... God specifically commanded him to do. I think perhaps the regulative principle might come to play here. But the clincher is that, is that Jacob made this infamous vow, fraught with unbelief, if God will be with me and will keep me in, in this way that I go and, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then... If then the Lord shall be my God. Never mind, it would seem, that God had made this promise to him. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. So let's go back to Bethel. 
says God to Jacob, that place that you designated as my house, that place where I promised you unconditional blessing, and that place where you put your condition upon me. Go back there and let's revisit your self-made spirituality and, and, and the unbelief by which you began. And this reading of our text is supported, I think, by God's own words. Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you. The need for an altar shows that the need is there for repentance and for sacrifice for sin. Things haven't gone well since Jacob returned to the promised land, and there is need for atonement. An altar, an atoning sacrifice is needed for what has happened. Even more, God says, make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau, which means that that God is not only charging Jacob with sin as regards to his daughter Dinah and the vengeance of her brothers, God is also reminding Jacob. And it is painful, but he's reminding Jacob of all his sin-filled history. Maybe you have a friend like the friend that God was to Jacob. Is, is there a friend whom you almost wish were not your friend because they always seem to make it a point to remind you of so many of your past sins? Well, don't give up that friendship. Because conviction is a gracious ministry. And here too, I think, is a, is a gracious ministry uh, for God to say to Jacob, go back to Bethel, remember your own words there, recall your vow that if God will bless you and provide for all your needs and bring you back to your father's house, then God will be my God. Remember those words. Because here you are fully blessed, here you are, all your needs met, here you are, brought back to your father's house, and yet here you are, still sinful, still doubting, and now in an awful lot of trouble with the people of the land. What follows then is, uh, is further support for this reading of the story, because the next point is, an insincere repentance. What did Jacob say? If God will be with me, keep me in the way I could go, give me bread to eat, clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house, then the Lord will be my God. Oh, such gravity to that vow. Oh, such earnest spirituality. But here he was, blessed, provided for, brought back, And yet when God said, go back to Bethel, what did Jacob need to do? He said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods. Foreign gods? Foreign gods? Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. It would seem that God's reference to Bethel, the name that Jacob himself had given to the spot where God had appeared to him, was a reminder of his vow. The Lord shall be my God. The Lord shall be my God, he said. 
except that now there were foreign gods. There were other gods. There were false gods within his household. And at least he repents. Verse 2 says, So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. The question is, why, why did it take God saying, Go back to Bethel for him to get rid of the foreign, false, heinous gods that were among his household? Verse 4 records, so they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had, the rings that were in their ears. But then it says this, which I think is, is rather breathtaking in a, in a, in a jaw-dropping dro- kind of way. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. I don't think there's any other way to read this than as an insincere repentance. Oh yeah, that thing at Bethel. Okay, let's let's get rid of the foreign gods in our possession uh, and let them be buried in a known location, easily accessible once again when the ceremonies are over. We must admit that uh, there's no adverb here. It doesn't say that Jacob secretly hid the foreign gods. It doesn't say that he strategically hid the foreign gods. But why do you hide something except that you expect to find it later? Why do you bury something except that you intend to dig it up later? The only exception might be the the garbage that you put out once a week to, to get rid of. It's picked up and it's buried in a landfill and there's really no hope of of reclaiming it, but in this case, why hide except to find later? Why bury except to uncover and regain later? And by contrast, do you remember what Moses did with the golden calf that the people had created and set up while he was meeting with God on Mount Sinai? Uh, Exodus 32 records that he took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder. He didn't bury it and and hide it under a terebinth tree. Even more, he ground it to powder, it says, and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. Here, taste it, says Moses. Taste and see that idolatry is, is bitter and evil Uh, Later, the psalmist would write, uh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Here we are this morning, uh, ready to eat and drink the body and blood of Christ in order to taste and see that the Lord is good. But following their idolatry at, uh, at Mount Sinai, Israel was made to taste and see that false gods are bitter And I'm sure the point was, let it pass through your urinary tract so that you will know how worthless a false god truly is. So are we to praise Jacob for collecting the foreign gods among his people and servants only to hide them under a tree? And surely the the further reference to what Jacob did with the foreign gods also has significance. It was the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. Why this reference again to Shechem? The reference 
would seem to be to the city of, of Shechem, but, but having just heard the story of Dinah and Shechem's violation of her, there's no way we can hear the reference except as a reminder, even a connection to the gross sin of the man Shechem. And so we see Jacob, I think, even further in an insincere repentance. On one hand, we can point out uh, that all repentance, let's just be honest about this, all repentance, even Christian repentance, is insincere, which is why we continue to sin even after we have repented and believed in Christ for our, for our salvation. We say we're sorry, but we still sin. We repent, we, we turn from sin and do good, and yet we return to sin, uh, Proverbs 6, verse, or 26, verse 11, uh, even says, Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. That's what we all are. We're fools, practicing an insincere repentance. Only let us not be satisfied with that. But in grief and, and with sorrow for sin, let us not quit quitting Let us not repent from repenting. The motto of the Reformation that still stands today is Semper Reformanda, which means always reforming. And the full statement is this, always reforming according to the Word of God. So the further point is this, that that repentance itself, by itself, will never save us. Try hard today, try harder tomorrow, do even better the the next day perhaps. But your repentance, like Jacob's, will never save you. Instead, you must repent and believe. And while neither your repentance nor your faith will ever be perfect, yet by your imperfect faith, in the perfect Son of God, and His perfect life, and His perfect sacrifice, and His life-giving resurrection, even by your imperfect trust in these perfect things, the person and work of Christ, you will be saved. Again, just like Jacob. Because the next point is, God is yet faithful. We've always made the point along the way that the point is is not just to beat up on Jacob. And as we see ourselves in in Jacob, in his weakness of faith and sin, the point is is not just to grovel in in our sin, but knowing our sin, to look to Christ. And by increasingly knowing the depth of our sin, we can increasingly know the height of God's grace. And that's what we see again here as as the record given in Genesis 35 goes from Jacob hiding the foreign gods of his household to God's continued protection of Jacob and his household. Verse, uh, Verse 5 says, As they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And do you make the connection? Why would the people of the land pursue them? 
Well, because the sons of Jacob had just carried out an attack on the city of Shechem, killing every man, it says, and taking captive the women and children and plundering all their goods. War was at hand. Retaliation was surely being planned. But God protected his people, and and he did so by causing a a terror. uh, To make it clear, it was a terror from God. And it fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. That's protection, (laughs) And and can we understand then, finally now, the unmerited grace and favor of God? What do God's people have to do and, and do wrong to get us to see that God meant what he said? He said to Abraham, I will bless you, both you and your offspring. He said to Isaac, I will bless you, both you and your offspring. And he said to Jacob, I will bless you, both you and your offspring. And we've seen sin and failure in the lives of these men. And yet God is still in the business of blessing. But the thing to see is that the same, is, the same thing is true for you and for me. This is the gospel Dear believer, God has decided to bless you. Deal with it. And how do you know that God has decided to bless you? To start with, because you're a believer. He has given you faith through the new birth that Christ has has provided you. And God has promised to protect you so that even if you suffer, and even if you die, and even if you are put to death by the enemies of God, yet your life is still in God's hands. And he will raise you up. But until the day of your death, which which will be the ultimate day of your deliverance and, and your victory in Christ, until that day there is nothing that the world can do to you that is outside of God's gracious will and his promised protection. Here it is again, as they journeyed. Here we are, right? On this journey through life. As they journeyed, the terror of God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And notice that it says the sons of Jacob. In other words, it specifically mentions the guilty ones. The ones who deserved the retribution of the cities that were around them. God God would not let it happen because of his promise, his promise to Abraham, his promise to Isaac, his promise to Jacob, and to Jacob's covenant household. What do we think? Well, God will surely punish me this time around I've, I've sinned again. Another day has proven that I'm not worthy. I know God will, will give up on me now. But God in His grace is, is not going to give up on you because He is not depending on you. He can't give up on you when He's not depending on you. His blessing on you is not contingent upon your obedience. Never has been, never will be. If you are a believer in Christ, then you stand in covenant relationship with Christ. The Bible teaches that if you are a believer in Christ, then God has chosen you 
to save you even from all eternity. And if that makes us soft on sin in our lives, then shame on us. But let shame, let us all the more, or bring us all the more to see the height of God's grace. All the more to see the beauty of Christ. All the more to see the glory of the gospel. That there is now no condemnation. Are we sure of that? That's what it says in Romans 8 verse 1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So then two quick closing points. The next point is death at Bethel. It's a... it's a strange reference. Why tell us this? In verse 8, in Deborah, Rebekah's nurse died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alan Bakuth, meaning oak of weeping. Who, who is this person? Uh, there is only one previous reference, I'm pretty sure, to this woman, the nurse of Rebekah, in, in Genesis 24. As, as Rebekah is leaving her family, along with her nurse, to go with the servant of Abraham and become the wife of Isaac. So, so this is even the first time we hear this woman's name, Deborah. Well, the point, it would seem, is, is not who it was. don't want to disrespect her, but the point is not who it was who died at Bethel, but that there was death at Bethel. Jacob's own vow at Bethel did not prevent the sin that remains in his life, and neither would Bethel prevent his own death and the death of any member of his household. The covenant promises of God do not mean that we will never sin again, and since the wages of sin is death, the covenant promises of God do not mean that we will not die. We will die. The Christian life is not yet a life free of grief. We live at Alan Bakuth, at the Oak of Weeping. But neither sin nor death can cancel the promises of God. Because the very next thing that we are told is that God renewed his covenant with Jacob. Once again, don't let the, don't let the new paragraph between verse 8 and verse 9, if, it, if that's the way it is in your version, it is in the ESV, but don't let the, the, the change in paragraph make you think that what comes next is disconnected because there is death at Bethel so that... Verse 9, God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him. Once again, God blesses Jacob. Once again, he gives Jacob his new name, Israel, meaning he strives with God. And how does he strive with God? By way of his unbelief, which for us has this lesson in closing that the only thing standing between you and God is your own unbelief. His promises are clear. The gospel is in front of you. Christ has come, has lived, 
died and risen again, and the call of God's word is to hear it, to receive it, to believe it, to rejoice in it. Over and over again, God renews his promises to his people. Over and over again, God's people prove themselves unworthy. So that over and over again, we have opportunity to know that God is for us. His promises belong to us. So as Jesus said to Thomas, do not disbelieve, only believe. Amen. Let's pray together. Help us to see indeed, O God, that the only thing between us and your blessings, especially the blessings of peace and assurance and comfort in life through all the struggles, the only thing between us and these blessings is our own unbelief. And we pray that uh, by our faith we would take up a more consistent obedience in our lives, all because you are our God, our God of grace, our God forever faithful to us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.